Hi there, we're your IP consultants. This is about to be highly indulgent. So sit back and unpack your anti-convulsions. And we'll tell you where to shove your Stanleys and Vulcans. We'll use this device for unsolicited advice. You didn't ask us for it, but you can't beat the price. We offer up our services from the U.S. to Sweden. We're your IP consultants, Vincent and Ian. Welcome to IP Consultants Podcast, where you're IP consultants. My name is Vincent. My name is Ian. And today, I guess we're going to start off by saying Stan Lee passed away. Yeah, we mentioned him in, in the theme song, and now it's just ever bittersweet. Especially today, because we're going to be talking about his first, well, first creation for Marvel and best known creation. Well, not, not maybe not best known, but his first, what kind of started the Marvel comic universe. Yeah, a co-creation creation with Jack Kirby, known as Fantastic Four. The first family of Marvel. Now, I may have mentioned before that I grew up reading vintage comics. You may have said that one or two, once or twice. Yeah, I read a whole bunch of Disney comics and DC comics, but of Marvel comics, the main thing I got into there was Fantastic Four, and I got into it because of a hand-me-down paperback of black and white Swedish translations of Fantastic Four stories, primarily the Galactus trilogy, which I just today re-read in color in English for the first time. And I just want to say that that story, when I first read it, was to me the experience that seeing Star Wars for the first time was to a lot of kids. It opened my eyes to sort of the potential of science fiction and the sort of exploration of humanity through science fiction. Now, reading it now, it's obviously, you know, it's a comic from the 60s. It reads like a comic from the 60s. (laughs) But there's stuff in there that to the mind of a child just it expands and it becomes Mm -hmm. something bigger. And I think one thing I really want to talk about is that feeling and how that translates to the screen. Sure, sure. Because they've done a number of Fantastic Four movies, four of them, in fact. They've done four, yeah. None of them uh, fantastic. Weirdly enough, the unreleased one, arguably the best one. Yes, the one from 1994 by Roger Corman, which was done in an effort to hold on to the property without telling. Yeah, Constantine Films had the rights to the Fantastic Four. Basically, Marvel sold off a lot of their properties in the 90s to kind of quell their bankruptcy and Fantastic Four went to Constantine and they hadn't done anything with it and they were going to lose the rights because they hadn't done anything with it. So in order to retain the rights, they got Roger Corman to do a movie. He produced it. He didn't direct it. And uh, according to the documentary Doomed, a lot of the people involved in it felt that, yes, it was low budget, $1 million, but they felt that they had a good film and that the film was going to be released. There were trailers, there were posters, they were doing talks at conventions and they felt the movie was going to come out and then when they finished the movie they found out that no it was not going to be released it was going to be shelved and I think Aviara tried to destroy all the copies of it <laughs> and uh, somehow a copy released. Yeah in retrospect that seems like a bit of an overreaction. Yeah a bit. Because there have been since three Fantastic Four movies officially released and none of them are as good. No. And the first one I mean I'm not going to say that it's like a great movie but but it's better than the other three. Yeah, okay. The one from 2000-whatever. Five, I think. Tim Story. Yeah, there were two directed by Tim Story. There was the just the Fantastic Four, and then there was Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. Which was based on that story I mentioned yeah. a moment ago. Which even has the wedding of Reed Richards and Sue Storm having a callback to the comic of the wedding of Reed Richards and Sue Storm, where Stan Lee and Jack Kirby try to get into the wedding in the comic. That's how they did Stan Lee's cameo in <laughs> Fantastic Four too, right. which was a nice homage, but the rest of that movie not so great. Yeah, they they made some popular mistakes, I want to call it, which is yeah. not trusting Jack Kirby. We've seen that with the Justice League movie. We've seen it with a number of things where either the studio or the filmmaker just looks at the drawing and goes, this looks really weird. I don't know how to put that on screen. Who wants a giant purple helmet? That's dumb. Yeah. The entire populace who know what the Fantastic Four is and have come to see your movie, that's who want to see it. Yeah, exactly. We don't want to see this giant ghost cloud eat a planet. 
Yeah, it is this thing of like... If nerds can accept Unicron in the Transformers movie, we can accept Galactus. Yeah, the thing is, there's this thing of looking at the drawings and not understanding that you can just put that on screen. And the one time we've seen a filmmaker look at the drawings and go, I'll put that on screen, is Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. That movie looks like a Jack Kirby drawing. So that's something that is sorely missing from all of the Fantastic Four movies, pretty much, is the visual scope of it being enhanced by the stylistic visuals of Jack Kirby. Of the artist, yeah. I will say Marvel is leaning more into that now. Yeah, they're learning. Both with, as you said, Thor Ragnarok and Doctor Strange looks like it leapt off a Steve Ditko painting. Yeah. And so I think they are leaning more into that. Considering Disney's acquisition of Fox, we may finally see Fantastic Four back with Marvel being introduced into the MCU. That's still in question, however, especially since it was only a few years ago when we got Fox's reboot of Fantastic Four called by most people Fantforstic because when they spelled it on the poster, the four was the second A and it made no sense. So yeah, we called it Fantforstic because that's how it's spelled on the poster. And boy, is that movie a mess. Yes, that movie is. I mean, it's covered in scotch tape, much like Justice League, which again, Justice League is another example of a movie (laughs) that does not dare to show us Jack Kirby's things on screen. Yeah, no new gods in Justice League and no anything Jack Kirby in Fantforstic. Fantforstic's origin seems to be a bit more of the Ultimate Comics version of Fantastic Four, but really watered down. Yeah, and watered down in kind of the wrong ways, because almost immediately after watching Fantastic, I went ahead and read some of the Ultimate Fantastic Four, and it struck me that if you just take that comic and maybe cut some stuff, mainly you cut Mole Man and a few other things, like you've got something that could be a movie, yeah. and it's like, they almost did that, but they cut too much stuff and just ended up with not a movie, really. They've done this twice now. We've had three different new Spider-Man movies, and two of them are origin stories. We've had technically three Fantastic Four movies, one most people haven't seen, but of the two that were theatrically released, out of the three movies that were theatrically released, two of them are origin stories. Yeah. And they keep retelling the same thing that everybody at this point knows. Well, what they did with Fantastic was they told a different origin than they had in the Tim Story movie. Oh, well, sure. And also, but also they, they told it slower, which is... They told it a lot slower. They told it over, in fact, most of the movie, which is bonkers. The entire movie is an origin story, yes. It's not just an origin in the beginning. The thing is, you can very easily get through the origin story in the beginning, and I guess we'll get to that when we get to the workshopping stage of this podcast, because yeah. it's not a very complicated origin. You can get through it in a couple of scenes, a little bit of a montage. I mean, there's tricks you can use. Yeah, you don't even have to get through it in scenes. There's a video essay writer on YouTube named Patrick H. Willems, and he did a video, I think last year, called How to Make a Good Fantastic Four Movie. I have not watched that, so just in case there are similarities between what I'm going to say and that video, I just want to say I've not seen it. Yeah, and I should have sent you the link. (laughs) I meant to, and uh, (laughs) I completely forgot. I ended up watching it last week, right after watching Fantastic, and he's got some actually really great ideas. It's also something worth checking out on his YouTube channel, but for the most part, he's like, you know, look, don't waste time on the origin. Go to the Baxter building. The bottom floor of the Baxter building is a museum to the Fantastic Four. Have them already be established heroes, and have like, you know, a little miniature video like you would in a museum. Explain their origin really quick, how they got their cosmic powers, and then just move on from there and just start the movie. That is one way of doing it. You can also do it other ways, and I guess we'll get into that more. Sure, clearly. But the point that I was getting at was that Fantastic spent most of the movie telling a story that you can get through really quickly in various ways. And they really just dragged everything out, and some of the choices just did not make sense. Like having its clobberin' time be Ben Grimm's brother's catchphrase when he kicks his brother's ass. Yeah, that was that was weird. When Ben Grimm gets slapped around by his brother, his brother says, it's clobberin' time. That, what? No. (laughs) Yeah, that was was weird. Uh, I think in the comic that I just read today, uh, again, he thinks to himself, as my Aunt Petunia would say, so I'm thinking that's what it should have been as as Aunt Petunia was saying it's clobberin' time. I was waiting to see that the Grimm scrapyard was on Yancey Street, and it wasn't. (laughs) Did they even show what street it was on? No, 
No, there's no mention of Yancey Street. Like, there, there are certain earmarks that these characters go back to constantly that they're known for, and a lot of it was just missing from that movie. And the fact that Reed escapes and the three of them are left without Reed for an entire year and are training their powers in a government facility is just the weirdest choice. Yeah, and a big waste of time. And A big waste of time. Meanwhile, no Doctor Doom to be seen. He's just gone. They thought he was dead because he fell on the planet. Yeah, and he's gone for a long time, so we don't get to build the conflict with him at all for most of the movie. No. He just shows up at the end and does almost nothing. Suddenly 20 minutes and he's popping heads like daisy tops and just he's out of nowhere they finally get the machine up and running again because Reed finally comes back and they go back to this I guess negative zone or whatever it is <laughs> whatever they're trying to claim that area was this dull brown planet <laughs> and suddenly Doom's there he comes back or they bring him back because they think he's injured and he comes back for his revenge but wants to go back to his planet because he's powerful there and we get the generic sky beam we always get the thing that really took me out of the movie watching it was the moments of Sue Storm where it was clearly a reshoot where she's very obviously wearing a blonde wig that is much brighter blonde than her hair was in the original shots and they're intercut within the same scene of her with her regular hair and it's really weirdly distracting. I'm gonna be honest, I was looking for that because I knew about that thing of the wig. I couldn't quite pick it out and that's how blind I am to people's appearances. I just don't notice shit like that. (laughs) So to me, it was barely noticeable like I there was a couple of moments where I was like is that the wig but I never had a moment of like oh shit that's the wig it was just like it's not that that's got to be it right I was never 100% sure (laughs) but that's me for me it it was really clear because it's such a like her hair is kind of dirty blonde normally in the movie clearly she had her hair a different color when they did the reshoots because they stuck this bright blonde wig on her and they tried to hide it with the lighting a little bit as to how blonde it was but for whatever reason when she's wearing the blonde wig her hair is pulled back and when she's not wearing the blonde wig her hair is not really down but it's more on her neck than it is when she's got the wig on so it's not just the fact that it's a bright blonde wig it's styled completely differently than her hair is in the other shots too yeah again i i'm just blind to it (laughs) what i notice is in the roger corman movie from 94 there's a pov shot from the pov of alicia masters for those who don't know alicia masters is blind yeah she can't see she's completely blind and she gets a pov shot which i think is just hilarious those kinds of things i notice but i don't notice things like someone's hair keeps changing the corman fantastic four movie in the state that it exists is probably the most accurate version when compared to the source material, especially as far as the costumes go, as far as the classic origin goes. Yeah. The thing that kind of brings it down is A, it's very clearly shot on a very low budget, and B, because they weren't intending on finishing it, all the dialogue from Doom and Ben Grimm or Thing, you can't really understand because the actors are delivering the dialogue from beneath masks and they never re-recorded ADR overdubs of the dialogue so that you could understand it. Right. <laughs> yeah, and obviously the Tim Story movies can be summarized as Blandtastic 4. Yeah, very much so. They just don't pop in any way. There's no stylistic choices anywhere to be found. It's just very sort of, Flat. it's just so basic. It is the early 2000s version of making a superhero movie. And all the movies that came out at that point kind of cookie cut look like that. Although, admittedly, thankfully, Fantastic Four is brighter in the Tim Story movies than, say, X-Men at the time. And that was the other thing, making Fantastic Four, which is always a bright, fun, emphasis on fun, comic, be kind of really dark and drab in the Fanforstic version. Yeah. But the Tim Stories, at least, were bright and tried to have fun. Yeah. Stylistically, maybe not in a large degree, but I think, character-wise, you know, they tried to at least give them the archetypes of, you know, Sue's kind of the motherly one and Reed's kind of the father figure and Johnny and Ben are kind of the rival brothers in the kind of family structure that the comic kind of holds. But after that, they kind of abandoned that. I mean, Johnny's super charming and Ben's always angry at him. But overall, it's just weird that the sequel makes the first movie better. (laughs) 
Yeah. The thing that I would say to really summarize the Tim Story Fantastic Four movies is like, the intent is there. Like, they're going in the right direction. I mean, the, the second one does not with the whole cloud thing. But in terms of style, it's going in the right direction, but not going fully anywhere. Not far enough. Yeah, it's because the talent isn't there really to back it up. Yeah, they reach for it and they don't quite grab it. Yeah. Whereas Fantastic isn't really reaching for anything. It's just sort of there. <laughs> yeah, and it wants to try so many new things and none of them really feel like finished thoughts. Yeah, and that's probably in part because it isn't the movie that the director was making. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for those of you who don't know, Josh Trank, Josh Trank the director, shot this movie and liked a lot of the things that he shot. And then there were reshoots that were done without him and the studio edited the film without him. So on the day the movie came out in theaters, he completely blasted it on Twitter. <laughs> this is not the movie that I shot. So that kind of aided in everybody going, oh, no wonder it sucks. Yeah. And I think what caused that was panic. Yeah. Studio panic over, I guess, fan fears more than anything. I don't know what the movie would have been if the movie would have been a piece of trash or if it would have been something better than what it was. Release the trank cut. <laughs> yeah, it's obviously. Obviously, there is no Trank cut. Again, no, the thing that doesn't exist. I'm assuming this is the same sort of situation as Justice League, where there might be an assembly cut, but it's just a pile of footage. So I guess, is that all we can say about the existing Fantastic Four movies? About the movies, yeah. I mean, some of the cartoons were actually pretty decent. Thing ring, do your thing. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not that. Well, maybe not the solo thing cartoon, but... (laughs) But if we just talk about the comic, because there's so much to say about the comics. Obviously, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, legends, pioneers, they did so many things that really hadn't been done. They merged the soap opera-y storytelling that Jack Kirby had been doing during the the in-between period. Mm -hmm. I mean, between Captain America and Fantastic Four. The sort of, I don't know what you would call that period, because that was like between the Golden Age and the Silver Age. Well, it was the period when there weren't any superhero comics for a while. They were all romance comics or... Or horror comics. Westerns or horror... I mean, horror was much later. Fantastic Four kind of came in during that period of the horror comics were sort of a thing. And Fantastic Four was trying to sneak in a superhero comic by selling it as a monster comic. Yeah. I mean, sure. I wouldn't really call them horror comics, at least not from Timely and Marvel. But well, monster comics, sort of more science fiction-y monster comics, tales of strange things like Tales of Suspense or Journey into Mystery. Yeah. Anthology comics, amazing fantasy. You know, you had your, your anthology things that were giving you shorter stories and definitely those weren't selling as well and they tried to do something to beef up what they were doing and kind of also seeing what DC was doing with their heroes but their heroes were kind of just heroes. They didn't really have faults or personal lives things that people could relate to, personal lives that people could relate to in their thing and didn't have that human connection. So that's kind of where Fantastic Four's biggest draw was is that these seemed like real people. Yeah, and not just people but a family and also celebrities, which is an interesting angle for a comic to take. It's like, these are not just people, they're famous people. We're following this family of famous science people who turned into strange creatures, and now they are saving the world and fighting strange villains and monsters and stuff. And it's like now, looking at that sort of thing, that's what a lot of science fiction is and a lot of urban fantasy type of stuff. It's like, you have people trying to live their lives, and meanwhile all this weird shit is happening. And Fantastic Four was kind of the birth of that, of things that led to stuff like, I mean, even Buffy the Vampire Slayer and and sort of the modern wave of television owes a lot to Fantastic Four if you just track it back to that moment. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, I 100% agree with that, yeah. And the fame thing is interesting because if you did Fantastic Four today as a television series or a movie, I think you really need to lean into the fame thing because that's a big part of what sets them apart from all of the things that came from Fantastic Four, all of the copies. That reminds me, we technically did get a really good Fantastic Four movie. It was called The Incredibles. Uh, Yeah, and also we got another one called Big Hero 6. (laughs) 
ironically, Big Hero 6, also based on a Marvel property. Yeah, so those are a couple of movies that, yeah, absolutely hit the tone that you would want from Fantastic Four. You would want that sense of wonder of like, these are people and also there's these big, amazing things happening. Yeah, and that's what makes me excited about the fact that Disney slash Marvel kind of have the rights to do a Fantastic Four movie again because Disney is the one who have gotten the tone close enough in their movies <laughs> yeah. that kind of emulate the ideals of the Fantastic Four. So getting them on it means it's a step in the right direction, at least. Right. Incredibles especially, because, I mean, even at the end of the first Incredibles movie, the beginning of the second one, when the Underminer, which is clearly Mole Man, comes in, you're like, all right, well, here we go. I haven't seen the second one. I'll say that. I missed it, but I will see it. It's very good. That's what I hear. But back to the thought of celebrity. Yes, sorry. I think if you do a Fantastic Four movie today, I think one thing you can do is play with the celebrity aspect in the way that you tell the story. Because now, celebrity is a different thing from what it was in 1961. Now, celebrity is eyes are on you all the time. Now, celebrity is keeping up with the Kardashians. Now, celebrity is a family can have a TV show that's just their life. Are we saying we want, like, an Osbournes style or a Kardashian style reality show about the Fantastic Four? I'm saying Johnny Storm wants that. <laughs> and I'm saying Johnny Storm is the executive producer of the show that is that show within the movie. And I think the way you can do the movie is the origin story. You tell it through like news clips or uh, in interviews. Like you do quick cuts of introducing this guy, Reed Richards, Mr. Fantastic, is already known as that because he's this genius who's building weird shit. And so they're like, this is Mr. Fantastic. They're calling him Mr. Fantastic. They're comparing him to Howard Stark and he's this brilliant guy. And he's like, please don't compare me to the Starks. It's don't do that. I don't like it. And then obviously when he becomes a superhero, it's like now they're really going to compare you to the Starks. Right. In the beginning of the movie, you can just do quick scenes of or, or like a montage of news stories and you ease into a news report of this is the day of the launch. Reed Richards has built a ship that is supposed to bend space. It's supposed to make two points in space subjectively closer to each other so that the ship can be between those two points and sort of snap to one of them in order to travel faster than light by bending space. And I think specifically that form of space travel can be used because then you can have an excuse for all of the Fantastic Four's powers. Because if that ship crashes, which it will, it can crash and there's fire and there's an energy leak and there's rocks. And Reed ends up with basically the ability of the ship. He can bend space. He can make the point at the other end of the room be at the tip of his finger. And from the outside perspective, that looks like stretching, right? He can make two walls farther apart so that it looks like he's squeezing through a crack. Like, that's how you can approach Reed Richards is making it like he's... The force perspective. Yeah, he's bending space. He's not stretching himself, but from the outside perspective, it looks like stretching because it's relative. And Sue bends light and matter around her, which is why she can become invisible and create force fields. So that's all sort of an extension of the same thing, of like bending stuff. And then Johnny and Ben just sort of absorb into the flames and the silicate of the crash. So like... All of that can be just done with the crash of this ship that's supposed to bend space because whatever the technology is that allows it to do that is what affects them all. Not Let's not tie Doom's origin into the Fantastic Four's origin. That is something that... Something that each of the movies have done. It's something that each of the comics have done as well. When Doom was introduced, they retconned him into the origin story. And then in the Ultimate comic, he was just there. Yeah. But yeah, I kind of agree is it's not really super necessary to have him be part of the origin. Because technically, Doom doesn't have powers. He's also a scientist. He just happens to be horribly scarred under the mask and all of the, his powers, he's Syndrome. <laughs> he's invented all of his powers. He's invented his Doom bots. He's invented his gauntlet blasters and the way he flies and his armor. And In his original introduction, he was sort of trying to close the gap between science and magic. Sure. That was kind of his whole sort of angle. If you do that, you can tie 
tie that into the things that were said in Thor. Thor, of course, introduced the idea that where I come from, magic and science are the same thing. Exactly. So that could be the thing that he's trying to tap into is that thing of like, where does science end and magic begin? Oh, no, he doesn't. Science just sort of crosses over into magic when you get advanced enough. And that's what he's sort of doing. Yeah. And you don't really, yeah, you don't really need to tie that into the origin. You can tie him in by having him witness what's going on and go, they did it. They tapped into magic. Yeah. I need to do that. Yeah, having him watch from Latveria. Yeah. And even that, I think Doom is so well known to be a Fantastic Four villain. I almost want to say in whatever way we introduce him into the MCU to not have Doom be first. I would agree because they've done that every time. And there is apparently a big challenge in doing a Fantastic Four movie because there's no inherent conflict springing from or causing the accident. Right. The origin story doesn't tie into a conflict story. So in a sense, you're telling two stories and trying to make it seem like one story. And that's kind of the inherent challenge. And I guess that's something we're going to have to figure out. I will say you clearly have put a lot of thought into introducing them into a film because of the way that you have the way the ship operates and the way that Reed is viewed from it and the way that Sue is viewed from it and then what the accident causes. You've put a lot more uh, pre-work into this episode than I did. (laughs) Well, having just read both main comic origins and having watched Fantastic. I sort of have thought about it because it's like in the original comic, there is a spaceship and there's something cool about this guy built a spaceship and he's just this guy is fantastic. He's Mr. Fantastic and the Fantastic Four. There's like him and his buddies are just going to go to space. Like, what is that? Like, who does that? And that I think that's a good place to start it. Making Reed Richards Elon Musk. They're basically just building this ship and there's this news report. Today's the launch. The Fantastic Four are going to go to space in a private ship that they built. It's the idea is that they're going to make this something that people can do, but they're going to run the experiment themselves because they couldn't find anyone nuts enough to do it. So they're going to go to space and they're going to bend space and they're going to go really far away and then they're going to snap right back and they do it and then they just crash and there's fire and there's an energy leak and then they're changed. Yeah, (laughs) I think that would be great if we could actually get it to work. It just seems like an easy, quick way to get there. It seems like you can get to that in like 10 minutes, maybe you can get through all of the origin and then you've got the Fantastic Four and they're like, well, now we're getting a TV show. That's Johnny Storm talking basically is like, dude, we're superheroes because like they do some quick hero thing. They save some people. They figure out that they can be superheroes really quick because they do some quick thing. And then there's more media attention like the Fantastic Four are now superheroes. Holy shit. What is going on? This is like bonkers. These (laughs) these four like Reed Richards, the guy who's building a spaceship on the top of a building, he's now a stretchy guy. And he's got his friend, the friends he was taking with him to, to space. They're now a guy made of rocks, a, a guy who's on fire and, and his girlfriend who is invisible. It's what the fuck? Now they get a TV show because Johnny Storm is like, I'm going to get us a TV show because maybe for a little bit, he's doing like a vlog or something. He's doing like, hey, I'm hanging out with Reed Richards. We're doing a new thing. We're building a thing. Check it out. Or And then the next vlog, he's like, we're saving people. Now we're superheroes. This is nuts. <laughs> so like you have like the news footage and you have the vlogs and then you get, oh, now we have a TV show. And then you have, this is the thing. Now we get to the point where people are obviously thinking, well, found footage, it's going to be shaky cam and it's going to look like crap. No, you have Reed Richards. He can build special camera drones that can fly around and he can use machine learning to have an AI that basically watches movies and learns how to shoot cinematically. So you can basically cheat your way to Star Wars level visual epic shot like a movie, but still saying this is found footage because Reed Richards built robots to shoot the found footage for them like a movie. Oh my god, what's really funny about that moment, Reed Richards and the cameras and the not found footage thing, is if Josh Trank had heard this, this could have been what Fanforstick would have been, because before Fanforstick, Josh Trank did a movie called Chronicle. Yes. Which is a found footage movie of kids getting powers, and there are moments in the found footage movie where they manipulate the cameras as if they're on drones instead to fly around them so that they're not all from their perspective. Right. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that I think that tie-in in my mind was very entertaining. <laughs> when I first heard Josh Trank doing Fantastic Four and people were saying, oh, he's going to make it found footage and it's going to be shit. That's when I started thinking about this idea of like, Fantastic Four found footage movie sounds awesome because Reed Richards can build cameras that shoot it like a movie. It's so simple. It's right there. The idea is right in front of you. It's so easy. And that kind of goes into, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, that's fine. But that it spawned an idea in my head is, you know, if they're having this reality show follow them, Reed would naturally want to build self-contained, self-propelled cameras rather than having a camera crew follow them when they're going and rescuing things so that maybe the camera crew is not endangered if we have it all running on drones and running by itself or our camera operator Herbie, you know, (laughs) have the robot run the camera or whatever, have that be the impetus. If we're going to have the reality show, let me build the cameras so that when we're going and rescuing and this camera crew is naturally following us, innocent people who are running the cameras aren't getting hurt. Yeah, it can be Herbie with a wireless drone camera system. Yeah, I'm sure you could make the acronym work Yeah, that. Well, the Herbie (laughs) is the main hub and then he's got these camera drones that are not like these big quadcopter style drums, but just little flying balls specifically programmed to learn how to shoot like a movie through machine learning. I think that's a fun way of doing it of like, no, I just fed them a bunch of movies and now they know how to shoot movies. The AI's writing from a thousand hours of watching. Yeah, Yeah. you do that, but with camera work because they can just scan the imagery and with this sort of moment, you want it shot like this and with this sort of moment, you want it shot like that and you have Herbie as the main hub that is controlling them. (laughs) At at that point, it it kind of, if it's shooting it like a movie, it doesn't quite become a found footage movie, but I still like the idea. Well, yeah, but it's found footage in the sense that it's a movie compiled from reality show footage and news footage and vlogs, basically. Sure. So that would be like the way of telling the story. And then you have the problem of like, obviously there's going to be things that you can't have shown. Like you can't have scenes of just the villain being alone unless you're spying on him. Stuff like that. There's a lot of little hurdles to get over with a found footage movie, which is you can only show what the cameras can see. But I think you can make it work. Well, that's why I was thinking instead of having the movie be a found footage movie, just having the reality show be an element of the movie. So more like District 9. Yeah, occasionally seeing it from the reality show perspective, but there's got to be moments where like they break the fourth wall of that and turn the cameras off. They say something like turn the cameras off and try to have a conversation that's not part of the show. And in those moments, that's when you can cut to, you know, the villain plotting or whatever. Right. Having it be an element of the thing, not having the whole thing be the reality show from the reality show perspective. That's what District 9 did. District 9 sort of started out as found footage and then like halfway through a movie, it changes into just a movie. Which I think probably is not a bad idea for this one. I think that would probably be to its benefit because having it be a found footage thing through the whole thing, again, you're going to run into problems like, well, how do we learn about our villains, etc. So, yeah. And how do we get moments of real character development with the Fantastic Four? Because they can't really be themselves when they're on TV all the time. They have to be always on. There has to be moments where the cameras are off when they can be real. And we find out the truth behind everything, how everybody except Johnny hates the reality show angle. Johnny was the one who really is pushing for it, etc. Yeah, and I think there's also a thing where you can explore the idea of why everyone agrees to the idea of the reality show. I think you can do that by having Johnny Storm basically convince them what benefit it is to them. I think with Ben, it's a bit of a challenge, but I think you can go, you're a weird looking dude. There's people out there who are weird looking, who don't have anyone to look up to. You can be their voice publicly. There's inhumans out there who don't look like most people. There are other beings out there. People are afraid of you, Ben, and if we put you on camera, we get to show the world what a snuggly bear you are. And then he punches Johnny. <laughs> you get to control the narrative. You get to be the voice of the different yeah. in a world that needs that representation. So that's kind of how you convince him. Uh, with Reed, it's like, this is your platform to spread awareness of science and technology and get people interested in STEM because this is educational. This is raising excitement for this stuff. This is Reed Richards' version of Bill Nye the Science Guy. Yeah, exactly. It's like checking in with Inventor Dude. <laughs> 
And Sue, anytime you don't want to be on the show, you can just be invisible. I don't think they have to even tell her that. I think that's going to happen anyway. Yeah. I think they're going to try to convince her to be on the show because she's just as valued a scientist as Reed is. Yeah, that too. You know, but she's going to hate the whole exploitative angle of a reality show. And she's just going to get fed up and just turn invisible every time. And we're like, no, come on. We're trying to have a conversation. And I know you don't want the cameras here. That's why you're invisible. Oh my God. All right. We'll shut him off. Just come back because so we can talk. Yeah. Yes. That's good character moments. I think to convince her into the format would probably be more making her and Reed more partners. Yeah. As far as the science and development. Yeah, that's true. I think because Sue is also a scientist in her own right. And that was something that the ultimate comic really uh, emphasized. Yeah, exactly. More than the uh, original run did. Exactly. Because the original run was done in the 60s and she was invisible girl and it was a product of its time in the way Sue was depicted. Yeah. And I think that's definitely something that should be updated for now and just make her as formidable a mind as Reed is. Make her an equal to Reed and everything that's going on with the spaceship and production of the science is them together, working together. Also, side note, her ability is as versatile as Reed's pretty much, or at least closer to as versatile than both Ben and Johnny. Johnny can fly and be on fire. (laughs) And that's a very sort of, oh, yeah, if you want to set something on fire, great. But most of the time, that's not going to be super useful. And Ben is really strong. Ben is really strong and practically invulnerable because of his rocky exterior. I think Johnny also, there's a bit more nuance to his powers than just being on fire and setting things on fire. The way he flies is, you know, it heats the air, heat rises, etc. There's science to it. Making it a lot more science-y can definitely be a thing. But also, in the way that you have their origins, Sue and Reed are the ones that get the powers based on what the ship is doing. Yeah. Yeah. And Johnny and Ben kind of get the aftershock of the explosion is what causes their yeah. powers. And so, yeah, their powers are a little lesser because of that, because it's not so bombarded with science. But I think that there's definitely an exploration that could be pushed further to their powers other than having them be, for lack of a better term, basic. Yeah, but what I mean is with the ability to create force fields, that's an extremely useful power. Sure. In a lot of different kinds of situations, being able to bend space or stretch is also a very useful power in almost every imaginable situation. Most situations you can solve by stretching, but being on fire is a very specific tool that is useful for very specific situations. It's not like any given situation you run into, oh, being on fire is going to solve this. It's like you kind of have to build the situation around needing to be on fire in order to solve it. (laughs) There's a certain amount of invulnerability that Johnny has from flaming on. I think. So like if a villain or whatever is got a gun and they shoot at him, you know, he flames on and the heat that he puts out and he can direct heat and control where on his body the fire is not just completely be covered in it. He can have it just appear on his chest to melt the bullet before it reaches him. Yes. Or what have you, because he's concentrating all his fire into one focused spot. Right. Or walking by, and you know, a girl's trying to light his cigarette and he just quickly lights it as he walks by trying to impress her because he's charming and suave and on TV, you know, and And causing (laughs) cancer and causing cancer because he's a schmuck. But yeah, but, you know, Johnny Storm causes cancer. (laughs) But yeah, I I think there's definitely some moments that could because I don't want to have especially the characters kind of feel lesser because of oh our powers are just this. You know? Yeah. Well, to get back to conflict, when you're dealing with the Fantastic Four and you're dealing with this idea of we know exactly how to do the origin, how do you get from the origin to conflict is an interesting question. And I think there are a lot of different ways of approaching it. One is when they're going out into space, they hit something and whatever they hit retaliates, which would cause an invasion. Annihilus. That is one possibility. You also have scrolls, which, of course, you can't really do now because they're doing it in Captain Marvel. And you've got Galactus could be a thing where like... The reason why they snap back and crash is because they bump into whatever wave of stuff the Silver Surfer is bringing along. There's definitely different possibilities, yes. Yes, but that's one corner of possibility of conflict. Another is once they get back to Earth, somebody gets mad at them. Uh, 
that, that sounds so enthusiastic. <laughs> well, it's like, obviously, the first villain they fought in the comic was Mole Man. He's a guy who lives underground and has monsters. That's his kind of whole thing. I mean, there's more to that's him. That's his whole shtick. Yeah, but that's his main thing, is he lives underground, and he's got monsters. Yeah, I, uh... I... <laughs> and you have the Puppet Master, who is one of the early enemies they face as well, who is also the stepfather of Alicia Masters, who is a very important character to the Fantastic Four world. Yeah. And I don't know if there's a movie in Origin and then Puppet Master. I don't know that there's a story there, but somehow you need to get to Alicia Masters because she needs to be there for any future stories, especially for the Galactus thing, because she basically saves the world by talking to the Silver Surfer. Because I just reread Galactus, and if she hadn't just happened to be where the Silver Surfer just happened to land after being punched by Ben, the world wouldn't have been saved because he wouldn't have changed his mind. He wouldn't have turned against Galactus and everything would have been lost because the Fantastic Four didn't really deliver the final punch. The Silver Surfer did. So you really need Alicia Masters to be there because it's kind of her story. And I think that's something if you did the Galactus story, you need to emphasize that and really make it her story, which is weird for a Fantastic Four movie. I agree with that, that that's weird. I would say if you're going to do the first movie as we're reintroducing it into the MCU, you don't do Galactus. Yeah, no. With the first movie. Yeah, no, that's like doing <laughs> that's like doing Zod in the first Superman movie. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> I like the idea of going into space and kind of accidentally running into something and that causes an invasion. People are gonna, especially if it has in the MCU, people should think, oh god, it's the Chitauri again, or why weren't the Avengers called when Thor the Dark World happened? Why weren't the Avengers called when whatever the Fantastic Four hit came in? Yeah. But obviously the invasion doesn't happen right away, right as soon as they hit the thing. Although, if it was made in the 2000s, it would have. Uh, <laughs> we give them a little bit more time to establish that they have powers first, and then Reed notices it on his, you know, he's looking at what happened in space. Why did we suddenly crash? Oh, it looks like, you know, according to this, we hit something. What did we hit? Oh, there's a lot more things coming now. And <laughs> so, that could be kind of them realizing that an invasion is coming, and, you know, going, well, we don't have time to call the Avengers. They're gonna be here now. We can stop them, because we have powers now. Right. One sort of fleeting thought is you need at some point to have Alicia Masters around and you need to have her introduced at some point. You either introduce her at some point during the first movie or you do like an offshoot thing like a romantic movie with just Alicia Masters and Ben Grimm and do the first just pure romance movie from Marvel Studios. <laughs> I like how they advertised the first Deadpool movie like that because it was coming out on Valentine's Day. Yeah. I think you can introduce Alicia Masters in the first movie. And that's going to be, when you introduce Alicia Masters in the first movie, that's going to be an element that's going to be separate from the found footage reality show within the movie. It's going to be a moment where the cameras are going to be off and Ben is fed up and leaves doing the show for a moment and walks away. And we follow Ben and he runs into Alicia, who is not aware of the show because she doesn't watch, she doesn't watch TV or anything because she's blind. You know, I it doesn't listen to the show or, or anything like that. And she runs into him not knowing his celebrity. And he finds a connection to her because of that, the way he does in the comics, you know? The way they meet in the comics has to do with the puppet master because she's there. And I don't think that's an absolutely necessary element. I think you can do it without the puppet master. Oh, you absolutely can because the Tim Story movies did. Yes. Well, what the Tim Story movies did maybe shouldn't be used as an example, but yes, they did. Well, I'm saying they were able to successfully introduce the character. It was without conflict or fanfare. Right. So it was like, she's just kind of suddenly there. You were able to introduce the character, give it a little bit more nuance, obviously, for this. Yeah, you want to give it a bit more weight and a bit more emphasis on the character arc of both her and Ben. And that absolutely can be done without the Puppet Master as a villain, because honestly, the Puppet Master is kind of lame. Well, the Puppet Master does two things. He puppeteers people, and he also puppeteers puppets. Those are his two things that he does. Like I said, he's lame. Well, puppet <laughs> Puppeteering people can be really scary. Sure, but the, removing the Jeff Dunham element of him, I think. Well, is I'm not saying cast idea. Jeff Dunham, but I'm saying. No, I'm, I know that. The Puppet Master conceptually is super scary because the first thing he does is try to make a guy kill himself as an experiment. That's the first thing he does in the comic. Sure. And, like, if you play that for the reality of it, that's horrifying. And it's a lot of the same stuff as Kilgrave and that kind of thing of 
like sure. controlling people and bloodbending from Avatar, that kind of thing. So the whole thing of controlling people is inherently scary if you just take it seriously. Oh, sure. So it's not like he's not a formidable villain. And it can be done well, but I just think tonally, I don't think it would really fit with, if you try to do it from that angle, I don't think it would tonally fit with the rest of what you're doing in this movie. Well, yeah, because if you're trying to make a fun Fantastic Four movie, you want a villain to feel formidable, but maybe not that creepy. Yeah, not suddenly out of a horror movie or Jessica Jones or, you know, something. Right, yeah. It's all about finding the balance. So that's just a sort of passing thought. And of course, you have the Mole Man is always an option because <laughs> the Mole Man was the first villain they fought in the comic. But again, Mole Man, underground monsters, there's not a whole lot to the Mole Man. But again, it could be connected to the crash because if they crash on Monster Island, they crash, it sends the rumble into the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And then he gets mad. That could be a thing. So that just gets you immediately to a conflict because they could crash on Monster Island and not realize what happened, then go back to Manhattan. And then Mole Man shows up with his monsters because he's pissed. Of invaders. Yeah, so like instead of having space invaders, you have invaders from underground. Yeah. That's one way of doing it. With all of these, I think though that we're kind of like, these are things that you kind of could do. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's again, it's not a big idea. Yeah, that's... And the thing is, you want to get to a big idea because obviously the thing that got me really into Fantastic Four was the Galactus story, and that was a big idea, but I don't think you can do that as the first one. I mean, you can, but it's not It's not ideal. You can, but I think the film will suffer for it. Yeah. yeah. It's better to save it for a sequel. But we also, you also want to make the Fantastic Four movie spectacular enough in scope and in storytelling that it's compelling enough that you want to see a sequel to it and have the adventure have weight you know not just the origin have weight because the origins is going to be the beginning of the thing have them being a family coping with their powers and learning how to suddenly be heroes but also have the scope of whatever thing they fight establish them as heroes and establish that they're formidable enough to suddenly have the more grandiose tales that they're known for right and that's one of the challenges that is kind of inherent to Fantastic Four because of the whole thing of how do you get to a grandiose, scope-heavy story right away. Part of that could just be escalating. Because if you do the Mole Man, if we go down this path of the Mole Man, and you go, okay, we're fighting the Mole Man on the ground, he's invading the city, it's monsters, blah, 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 and then we go underground, and there's a whole world underground. There is the possibility of some grandiose scope, but again, it's almost a little too simple. It doesn't have the sort of science fiction tangliness that you kind of want to feel. Have When they go underground, that's where they discover the true Monster Isle, for example. If they crash on Monster Isle, they've suddenly crashed on the island, and the island looks like any other island, and they're like, this isn't on any map that we know of. How do we... This is unfamiliar ground. They go underground, and there's a whole world under there. It's not just the Mole Man's lair. There is a whole world established underground on Monster Isle that is beyond the scope of anything they've seen. A journey to the center of the Earth kind of idea, you know? Yeah, exactly. And have that kind of be where the fantastical worlds of the comic come into play, where the Jack Kirby art really blows your mind and going under there and realizing all of the bizarre things and extra sensory things that you would see in the comics kind of exploding out of that realization of a world within a world. Right. The problem that we're bumping into here is conflict. We want to root for our heroes. If they are breaking and entering essentially into this, they're, they're, they're invading this world they're the bad guys in a sense and yeah mole man is just protecting his home so the question that arises is how do you get to a point where we're rooting for the fantastic four if that's the story because i don't think you can really have them go down underground and mess with stuff without there being a reason for it Well, no, no, I'm saying they don't go down right away. I'm saying they go down as a response to whatever Mole Man has done. Right, yeah. You know, they follow him back to his lair and they discover this land. Okay, yeah, so then we're back to what I was saying earlier. Yeah, no, no, I I wasn't saying that they do that instantly from crashing there. Okay. And if I was, that's not the impression I intended. Okay, yeah, I just got Uh, confused. (laughs) It was a little unclear. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good way to kind of establish the scope of their worldliness after getting their powers. Or, or there's always the angle of, 
thinking about the bigger picture of introducing them into the MCU. Do we give them that origin movie or do we put their origin in a different movie and then just let their solo movie be the big thing like they did with Black Panther? Well, that is Black Panther had his origin sort of explained in Civil War. And then when they finally gave Black Panther his movie, he was just kind of free to have his movie. Right. The character is already established. They kind of give you a cursory version of it and then it just kind of goes. Why not introduce Reed Richards and Sue Richards in the MCU in a different movie as an Elon Musk kind of character who's kind of a Tony Stark rival, but he's not focused on the celebrity of it. He knows that there's a celebrity angle. He knows that people watch him, but he shuns it. And all the paparazzi is there because Johnny is the one that calls them. And <laughs> But have them be this science organization and have Tony have to call his closest rival, the Richards, well, in to help for a situation. Well, I'm laboring under the assumption that Tony is being written out probably. So I'm thinking more that we end up in a situation where we need Tony's help and Tony's not there. So they call in Reed Richards. We go to the second best thing. Yeah, like this is the new <laughs> up and coming. Have a quick shot of Justin Hammer in prison just looking at a phone waiting and it never rings. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> yeah. And then and then they get Reed Richards and, and Sue Storm and they're like, Yep, we're here. I'm Mr. Fantastic and this is Mrs. Fantastic. <laughs> I don't think they use those names. Yeah, I no, think that's that's media stuff. Maybe Johnny Storm. I think runs I, with it. I think 100 percent. They call each other Reed, Sue, Johnny and Ben. Johnny is the only one who uses the term the human torch because he's got a catchphrase. I think Ben would call himself the thing because, like I said, I've been reading the original comics and there's a big thing of like, I'm not Ben Grimm anymore. I want I wish I were Ben Grimm. I'm just a thing. That's his emotional state. Sure. And I think there's something to explore there. I think it would be very interesting if the media calls him Ben. Ben Grimm, and everybody calls him Ben Grimm, but he insists on calling himself the thing because he just can't bear to see himself in himself because he doesn't see himself when he looks in the mirror. He sees a thing. Right. And I think that's the angle to take with that. It's like, he's the one who's calling himself that name. And, and Human Torch would also be calling himself Human Torch because he's that kind of person for different yeah, those reasons. Those two have names and the media just kind of dubs the other two other things. Yeah. And I think Mr. Fantastic is the only one who would have a nickname before he changes. Oh, I, I agree with that angle of it, but I don't think he ever calls himself that ever. Yeah, no, the media does. The media is like Mr. Fantastic, and he's like, stop calling me that. He absolutely hates that name. I am not Mr. Fantastic. My name is Reed Richards. I am a scientist and an inventor, and I, exactly. I, and I would appreciate if you stop comparing me to Tony Stark and Howard Stark. I am Reed Richards. Stop. I have more similarities to Hank Pym than I do <laughs> yeah. Tony Stark. So yeah, that's, that's definitely a way of doing doing it is introducing them as secondary characters as a sort of Fitzsimmons yeah, of the movie side. Exactly. Because, you know, as far as the movies know, there is no more S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> so they can't really call Fitzsimmons or anything like that. And so, yeah, having them be a secondary solution and kind of establish that there are other people getting powers and this group just happens to be one, but the Avengers or whoever calls them weren't aware of it. Yeah. Here's an interesting idea. Instead of introducing them in an Avengers movie, do an opposite flip and introduce them in a Spider-Man movie. Yeah, I could see that. Introduce them in a Marvel-run Spider-Man movie because Spidey's first issue outside of Amazing Fantasy 15 is him trying to join the Fantastic Four. And we already have it established in the movie universe that he wants to join the Avengers, but have him hear about a, another family team in New York and have him go check it out, a run by these scientists who are kind of rivaling what the Starks did and what the Pims did, and go to check it out and realize that they're an actual superhero team. That is a way of doing it, but then you're just skipping the origin. Yeah, I think that goes into, you know, he wanders into the Baxter building and is going through the exhibit on the Fantastic Four and sees the, you know, the news things about their origin. Well, I mean, if they're already famous, he would already know that stuff. Well, you see, that's the thing. We don't know what's happening in Far From Home. This could all happen while he's... While he's Far From Home. <laughs> according to what we know about Far From Home, he's not in New York in that movie. He's Far From Home. Right. So this could all happen while he's away and he's learning about it when he gets back. Oh, so he comes back and then the Fantastic Four has been established. Yeah. In his absence. Yes. In a newspaper clipping in Daredevil. Because uh, <laughs> Karen Page wrote an article on them and... <laughs> So, 
I guess we still haven't quite figured out every angle on this because we've tried to figure out what the villain would be if you do the movie where you introduce them in the movie. I like the idea of keeping it Mole Man because that seems like a keeping it 100 versus a Hans Mole Man Simpsons reference. I like the idea of keeping the villain as Mole Man in the first movie because that is a very homage type thing to do to their first issue. Yeah, and they did that with the Avengers by having Loki be the villain. Yeah. Like in the first issue. Exactly. And I think establishing them in another MCU movie is more likely what's going to happen as far as origin stuff because any of their new characters with the exception of Doctor Strange really are being established in other films. Black Panther and Spider-Man were both introduced in Civil War. Any other new characters were, were coming about in other movies. The only one who really had a solo movie with an introduction were Ant-Man and Doctor Strange and those were at this point two phases ago. Right. It just occurred to me I think a couple of these ideas can be combined. Oh, absolutely. Because if you do introduce the Fantastic Four as a thing that's already been established while Spider-Man was away and he comes back and he goes to the Baxter building because science and, you know, the Fantastic Four is a thing. And then you go Fantastic Four movie and you start it off with sort of a recap of their origin. Exactly, exactly. In the form of news footage and vlogs and interviews and whatnot. Suddenly realizing they have a reality show. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, and then we go to the reality show and then we go to, oh shit, back when that happened months and months ago, back when we crashed, we caused a disturbance and now we're going to have to deal with a problem we caused, which is Mole Man attacking. Yeah, we realize that we've disturbed this underground society that humanity was unaware of. They're now invading the United States because they traced the origin of the ship and the crash. We came back here. They thought they tracked us here and are following us. Then we have to go back to their island to stop their invasion or something like that. I don't know. I'm spitballing. One thing they would try to do is negotiate and be like, hey, it's all a big misunderstanding. We didn't know there was anyone there. We crashed on accident. It was not an attack. Right, exactly. And Mole Man is just like not hearing it. It's just like, you attacked us. We had actual structural problems because of what happened. Things happened down there and we're our lives are changed. You've messed with us. Now we're going to mess with you. I don't care if it was an accident. People lost their homes. I think it's more of that society wasn't even aware of the outside world the way that that Mole Man Monster Island thing didn't realize that there was anything beyond Monster Isle. Yeah. Anything beyond their underground home or what have you. So. Yeah, I think that's a way of doing it. Because then, yeah, you could do a, a Spider-Man introduction and then you do the news footage and then the reality show and then the attack. Then have the Spider-Man introduction be instead of as it was in the comics where Spidey tries to join the Fantastic Four, have him go to the Baxter building as an emissary to try to get the Fantastic Four to join the Avengers. Well, and then then turn him down. I'm saying for their introduction in his movie. Or he's just trying to get an internship at the Baxter building that was, or he's trying to get a job or something and he had something scheduled before he left and he's trying to reschedule it because he came back. Right, right. Oh, that that's great too, yeah. Because it was the whole science thing and he's a tech whiz. So he's trying to get a job at the Baxter building and when he comes back there, it's like, oh shit, this is a superhero team now? What? <laughs> Wait a second. What did I miss? <laughs> yeah. That's all very, very good. And I think that would kind of help establish a bigger idea of scope for the Fantastic Four's own movie is them trying to correct whatever mishaps they caused by crashing. I think that could lead to their conflict. I kind of like the idea of the goal not being defeat the invaders, but make peace. Not just make peace, but kind of learn about them too. kind of establish that the Fantastic Four are explorers and having them send a recon mission of establishing peace and understanding and learning about these characters. Yeah, but I mean, at the end of the movie, at the end of the movie, when they're having the final showdown and stuff like, wouldn't it be nice if instead of like, oh, we got to kill him, you go like, no, we're going to actually establish peace. And at the end, you actually establish peace. Sure. In Man of Steel, for example, imagine if that movie had ended with establishing peace. Yeah, that would have been kind of nice. Yeah. Not to say that there won't be big fight scenes, because obviously there's going to have to be. Yeah. But I think those fights come from the misunderstanding or the not understanding. And then when they finally reach, these guys are not trying to kill these people. They're scientists. They don't want to kill them. They want to understand it. They want to study things. They want to learn. Yeah, but you don't want it to be like an anthropology thing either of like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not saying it like that. I'm like, look, of course they're attacking us. We've disturbed their home. It's just the same thing as if you step on an anthill. <laughs> we stepped on their anthill. This is the natural scientific reaction that's going to happen. Yeah. We're going to defend ourselves, but we're not going to try to cause them harm because we need to establish communication. Yeah. And then you can also have this thing of really playing with the science thing of like, and the smart 
thing of figuring out how to best approach this situation as not a fight, but a situation that needs solving. Yeah. Because obviously what we saw in Man of Steel, again, was approaching it as a fight because it's like you have this problem and they could have been solved by other means than fighting, but it was approached with fighting. Superman punched Zod very hard and then snapped his neck. (laughs) That thing is something that we've seen over and over again of like, oh, there's a problem. Let's punch it. With the Fantastic Four, you have an opportunity to go, there's a problem. Let's solve it. Let's actually try to solve this problem and let's perhaps actually solve it as opposed to killing it. This episode is all over the place. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's a little rambly. It's a little rambly. And I think we have established that this is an IP worth examining and going back to again, trying to bring focus back to again to reestablish it as a property because it has been tried three different times and each time has not been successful. Right. I think we're on the right path to making it successful, making it accessible, making it a thing that people can latch on to. But I think what we've really missed in our discussion is the focus on who exactly the Fantastic Four is. We've touched a little bit on the idea that, yes, they are explorers. Yes, they are scientists. But truly, the keystone of the Fantastic Four is that they are a family. Yeah. And I think pushing that focus deep down is the heart of what these characters are about. Yes. And I think that's a very important keystone to have in any of the situations that we've come up with. That is something that really needs to be a really big focus because it is a really big focus of the books. Yes, they're scientists. Yes, they're explorers, but they are a family of scientists. They are a family of explorers. Yes. They watch out for each other and it is very focused on not just the science of it, but the science together and truly being a family unit and how this family unit deals with being explorers and being scientists. Yes, absolutely. Family is very important. Tone is very important. Scope is very important. There are a lot of things that are very important about Fantastic Four. Family is definitely one of the biggest ones. Because obviously the soap opera element, for lack of a better term, of the comic is one of the primary things that drives it, is the relationships between the characters and their external relationships and the things they care about as people. And that was really what Stan did with the comic to try to separate it from what DC was doing, is making it relatable, making them have their everyday problems, not just being superheroes, having them have relatable character traits, having them be a family that bickers and fights but loves each other. You didn't at time see that in the other books. Yeah, like one of the things that happens at the beginning of the Galactus story that was one of the things that as a kid I noticed, because I'd been reading Justice League and stuff, and I just hadn't seen a thing like this, was like in the beginning of the story, there's this moment where Reed Richards is really burying himself in his work, and he's not shaving, and he's growing facial hair, and his wife is like, you haven't shaved, you haven't come out in days, you don't talk to me, what's going on? Like that moment of like, this is really like a human moment Mm -hmm. that you wouldn't see in a Justice League comic at the time or anything like that. It's that sort of thing that drives it. And then also with Alicia Masters, when she turns up later in the comic, here's a character who is living with a disability and has things that she cares about and has some relationship to our main characters. And she has a conversation with the Silver Surfer and she gives him food. And it's this really mundane moment that is pivotal to the story because that's the moment that he changes. And it's those things that really like stood out to me when I was reading it as a kid of like, holy shit, this is this big science fiction story. And here are these human moments with these characters that are pivotal to driving the story and that's the beauty of it and that's what I really want to see that's exactly you used the exact phrase I was going to say the human moment and I think in their first movie we can establish that human moment in the conflict with the mole man by trying to appeal to the humanity they have their human moment because they you know the mole manity the mole <laughs> Sure. Yes, fine. Let's go with the pun. Uh, <laughs> it's not a pun. <laughs> oh, the humanity. But yeah, have that human moment of empathy for what is happening on Monster Island. You know, have the, the human moment of feeling for these displaced, disgruntled creatures because you've interrupted and damaged their ecosystem. You've caused chaos in their ecosystem and then the, the empathy towards that. And that's what separates the Fantastic Four from, say, a government agency in that movie. Just saying, let's blow them up, let's attack them 
them. They're clearly coming here to attack us. They're going to crush us all. And the Fantastic Four are going, no, they're people too. They're creature people, but they're people. Establish the empathy. Try to put a human emotion, a human connection to that. Yeah. And I think thematically, you can really lean into the thing with the thing with that. The thing with the thing. <laughs> yeah, because the thing about the thing is the thing is the thing. So the thing understands what it's like to not be seen as a person. Yeah, exactly. Ben feels like maybe he should join the Mole Man and Monster Island, live there instead. And they're like, no, 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 you're part of our family. You live with us. Yeah. Having those be key establishing moments are vital to the core of what the Fantastic Four is about. And I think all of the ideas that we've come up with this are great, but having these definite earmarks be a part of it are vital, more vital than anything else that we've said and help drive what we've said. Yeah, and it's more important than any fight scene. And again, coming back to Galactus is like that story is not solved with a fight between the Fantastic Four and Galactus. It's really solved with a conversation between a blind sculptor and an alien. But making a movie of that, people are going to want to see the fights. They don't want to see Ang Lee's The Hulk, (laughs) which was way more conversations than it was action scenes. I'm going to be honest. The introspection parts of Ang Lee's Hulk are the parts I like. The fight scenes... I, you could skip them. There's a good movie and a bad movie mashed into one, and the fight scenes are part of the bad movie. I don't 100% agree with that. I do like the character study that is in Ang Lee's Hulk, but it is also a Hulk movie, and it takes an hour before we see the Hulk in that movie. <laughs> well, yeah. But then again, when we see the Hulk in that movie, it's not <laughs> that impressive. Well, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking more technology at this point, and how good the effects are, I think. Well, I think I can overlook technological issues if I care about the characters. The thing is, this is a bit of a sidetrack, but a big thing with the Hulk before the Avengers was always you care about Bruce Banner and you care that he doesn't turn into the Hulk. And then once he turns into the Hulk, the tension is gone because the thing that wasn't supposed to happen has happened. So now who cares what happens? I I agree to that to some point. But my point is in bringing up Ang Lee's The Hulk is that movie was billed as an action movie. And then you got an Ang Lee movie where it's a bunch of people talking about emotion and that's what people didn't like about that movie. The broader audience didn't like that about that movie. Yeah, I'm weird because those are the bits I like in that movie. No, I and there's nothing wrong with liking those bits, but I'm saying in a broader mass appeal. Yeah, you, you need a good balance. You need a good balance of those. In a Fantastic Four movie, you absolutely need to have both of those things. Yes. But there needs to be the balance between them and definitely not skimping on either of them. Yeah. Because skimping on the character focus introspective parts lessens the impact of the family aspect. Skipping on the action sequences and lessening those honestly skips on the box office draw. Yeah, but I I will say with the action, there's this thing of action where people tend to assume that action means fighting, which I would like to say not necessarily. Action is doing stuff. Action can be problem solving. If you look at Doctor Who, for example, Doctor Who is a show with a whole lot of action and not a whole lot of fighting. Yeah, have it be rescuing. You know, things are exploding and animals are attacking and the Fantastic Four aren't fighting these animals. They're protecting the populace. They're getting them out of the way and moving them here and saving them and not really, not combat, but reaction. And also coming up with clever solutions to problems. Yes, yeah. They're reacting to the situation, not overacting and combating the situation. Yeah, exactly. Because you have a guy who can stretch. You have a woman who can turn invisible and create force fields. You have a guy who can fly and be on fire and throw fireballs sometimes and you have a guy who's made of rocks. Really strong and invulnerable. Yeah, the guy who's made of rocks is going to be really useful in a fight. Sure, the guy who's on fire is going to be really useful in a fight but it's more interesting to see them try to use those powers constructively and in problem solving. That's, I think, a very important part of the Fantastic Four because when you have Johnny Storm, like, yeah, he could set someone on fire but that's not very interesting. That's easy. Have him rescue somebody from a fire. Yeah. Animals are knocking stuff over on a bridge. A car is overturned. There's a family trap between two cars and there's a fire in front of them. They can't get out. Johnny flames on, walks through the fire, flames off so that he can grab the people, flames on the rest of his body to fly, but his hands are not flamed on so he can carry them out of there just so that he can get in there to protect them and get them out of the bad situation. Yeah, and like melting stuff to get past stuff. Yeah, exactly. Have it be reactive, not combative. Yeah, and clever, I think. 
think you need a bit of clever. Absolutely. Because a big sort of thing of Fantastic Four is problem solving because they are, you know, scientists. Well, they're not all scientists, but science is a big part of it. And for that reason, I think solving problems is more interesting to see them do than just punch things. (laughs) I agree with that. And I think if you take all of those ideas and focus really heavy on that main aspect of them being problem solvers, explorers, and scientists first, more than just people with powers, I think that's where you can finally get a good Fantastic Four movie. I think that's probably all we can really say about this. Yeah, I think we've seeded a lot of ideas. And I think anyone who listens to this who has the job of writing a Fantastic Four movie would have probably something to work with. Yeah, definitely. We've given you the base idea. And that's what we do as IP consultants. We give you the base idea and that's your responsibility to carry that out and make that good. We've given you how to make that good. It's now up to you to do so. Yeah. Also, if your job happens to be to make a TV show and not a movie, which, you know, could happen, these ideas pretty much work there too. Yeah. It's just a matter of like doing more of a serialized and episodic combination thing, you know, the post-Buffy model of television storytelling and just applying that to these sorts of things. Absolutely. All right. Well, we have been your IP consultants. If you have a property that you would like us to consult on, you can email us at ipconsultantspodcast at gmail.com or send us a tweet at ipconsultpod. You can also visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ipconsultpod. Any podcasts that you've missed from SoundCloud, you can now find at ipconsultants.podbean.com. Once again, we are your IP consultants. My name is Ian. And my name is Vincent. And uh, have a, a wonderful time. And a tasteful tuna. Later, everybody.